see, there we go. All right, couple thing, uh, one thing due. Uh, today is the sec- a second solar observation, at least one more. Uh, you can turn that in on D2L if you want to submit it on D2L through the Dropbox sometime before 6 o'clock tomorrow. Although I don't think if you wait until the last minute, it looks like it's going to be very clear today. To don't doubt it's going to clear up by 1 o'clock. Uh, but you can submit that if you have it on D2L. If you have a paper copy, you can drop it off on the way out of class to at the end of class today. And I will look at those and have those back for you along with most, of your, most if not all of your other stuff on Friday. I'll have all those papers to give back to you. Quiz 3 will be available starting on the 3rd, starting on Friday. Again, if you took it earlier when it was available and you wanted it reset, just send me an email letting me know and I will reset it for you and let you take it again. Uh, let, you, let you retake the, retake the quiz now that, we've covered, now that we're covering all of the material. And then exam 2 covering chapters 3, 4 through 8 and 9 uh, will be on the 6th, so it will be Monday. Um, and that'll be the similar uh, style and structure to the other ex- to the previous exam. Same number of, same number of questions. Um, same uh, same ge- same general uh, style overall. You may still bring in if you want to print out those summary questions that I provide on D2L for each lesson. You are welcome to print those out, make notes on them. But those sheets, nothing else, no books, no, nothing else other than those that set of. Sheets four chapters three four through eight and nine, but you are allowed to bring those in if you if you want something as an extra resource for the exam. You are allowed to bring those in, and then homework four I have for you. I've got due on the fifteenth right now. That'll give us plenty of time to get through the chapter. One, two. That should give us plenty of time to get through there between an exam day and a holiday and all sorts of stuff that'll delay us a little bit. So I will give you that. I'll give you that now. It does cover the sun, even though it's not due till the 15th. It wouldn't certainly not hurt for you to look at the first five questions, which are on the sun, which will be material from the exam. So you may want to take a look at least the first five questions, whether you actually answer them all out or not is one thing. But you may want to at least be familiar with the, with those first five. Six through ten, we'll start covering that material on Friday. So no reason to even look at those. Those yet, that will, those will not be covered on, on the exam. So that's what's coming up there. Any questions? There's another quiz coming up after that, and I think the second article review will be due the following week after this. There's a couple other things to think ahead a little bit on that I'll be putting up towards the end of the week. No, no, no. All right. Picture of the day for today then is the Butterfly Nebula, so a really beautiful image taken by Hubble. So this is after Hubble was repaired, its lenses were repaired, and uh, able to see really clear images, and you get a beautiful image of this nebula um, out in space. This is what we call a planetary nebula. Planetary nebula, despite its name, has nothing to do with planets. So it's a planetary nebula. Some of them look very round. This is an unusually shaped one, but some of them look like little disks, so it might have looked like a planet or a planetary system through a little telescope. That's how they got their name. But this is actually what the sun will become in about 5 billion years. The sun will do something quite like this. And over the coming weeks, uh, we're finishing up on the sun, but we'll actually start talking about stars and how they go through their lives. And we'll talk about this stage, which is the planetary nebula phase. At this point, the star would be a tiny point down here towards the center. So it's completely hidden in this case by this little dust uh, 
lane of dust going across, so you can't even see the star itself, what's left over of it anymore. But when a star reaches the end of its life, the core collapses down to become incredibly dense. And that's what's left behind there. We call that a white dwarf star. And that's the, the hot, hot core of the star. That's what's left over most of the material of the star. But while that collapses, the outer layers expand out. And at some point, billions of years from now, the sun will expand in size and will eventually engulf Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars. So the sun will become so large that not just how big it is now, but it will be some many, many times bigger and will engulf the entire inner solar system. So eventually we'll become part of that. And at some point, those layers, you can think, those layers are getting so far out, they're not held very strongly by the gravity. So eventually, instabilities push them out into space. And that's what you're seeing here is how they've been expelled out into space. This is really the outer layers of the star now covering regions you know, light years across. Those outer layers have been expelled back out into space. And they'll eventually, right now they're being illuminated by that very hot core of the star. Eventually, that will die out. It'll cool off. There's no more energy source. It will cool off. The nebula will disappear. This, these will continue to expand outward into space and become part of the next generation of stars. So one of the possible end states of a, of a star is a planetary nebula. That's what will happen to the vast majority of stars. Anything like our sun, even, even a bit more massive, only the most massive stars will have a completely different end to their life that we'll talk about, again, coming up here in just a couple, just a couple of weeks. But really a beautiful image taken by, by Hubble here. Question? No, we're ready to go back to the sun. All righty. All right, well, let's go finish up the sun. We should have the sun be able to finish up the sun today. We were looking at this last time. And we were looking at the sunspot cycle, which is an 11, uh, roughly 11-year cycle. Again, I told you last time it's not exact. So if we have the peak is 1990, we can't guarantee that it'll be 2001 and then 2012 and 2023. It varies a little bit. And sometimes a little bit shorter, where it might be, you know, just take nine or ten years to get from peak to peak. Sometimes it might take a little bit longer. Sometimes this last one was a little longer and it actually took, you know, more like 12 to 13 years to get from the peak to the peak. But, very, but average, on the average, over a long period of time, it comes out to about 11 years. So for a while we'll see lots and lots of sunspots on the sun. They'll fade off and Again, this is counting average monthly sunspot numbers. How many sunspots do we see over the month? You know, you might get a number up in the hundreds here for the very active sun, and you might get numbers, you know, very close to zero when the sun is not very active. In fact, it can go down to zero and it can be zero for quite a, be close to zero for quite a while. Now, the other thing that we see here, that I didn't start really going over, was looking here at this little inset image where we've zoomed in on this section from the 1940s, where we look at the sunspots, how they go up, down a little bit up. It's not an exactly regular pattern. You see how they kind of zigzag up and down. Sometimes you'll get a lot of sunspots. They'll start to disappear. More will come back. It's a very irregular pattern that we get. But what we see up here is where the sunspots are forming on the sun. So as the cycle starts, they, far, they form further away from the equator. This is the equator, the central portion of the sun. This is further away, 30 pushing to 40 degrees away from the equator. A lot of the sunspots form very early there, further away. 
And then as the, as the cycle goes on, it peaks up in here where you get the most sunspots. And then as the sunspots start to fade off again, they get closer and closer to the equator. So mo at that point, most of the sunspots are forming within about 10 degrees of the equator, very close. And then they disappear. You get hardly any sunspots for, for a little while there. And all of a sudden, they'll come back and they'll again start at this very far further away from the equator and work their way back down again. Good question as to why that might occur. Why, do they, why does that happen? And it may have something to do with the way the magnetic field tangles up in the sun. As I said, the sunspots were caused by the way the sun rotates and how that tangles up the magnetic field. And perhaps it tangles better at the higher wavelengths, or that's where the, the, where the magnetic field lines are most easily able to kind of pop out of the sun. So why exactly that happens is a really good question, but we do see that. And since we saw the butterfly nebula earlier, this is the Maunder butterfly diagram for sunspots. How does it look like a butterfly? Well, if you turn your head sideways and look at it, and imagine the butterflies kind of all flying. Here's the center of the butterfly with the wings going this way. All the butterflies are going that way. How it got its name just from the look of it. That's called the Maunder butterfly diagram. And we see that with every, every set of sunspots that we look at. Every cycle we look at, we see the exact same pattern. You see that there's a big variation. It's not exactly. They all form here at 40 degrees and then they form at 30. But overall, the average, you can see that they're definitely a lot higher up here. Shows better on the bottom one here. Definitely much further away from the equator here at the beginning of the cycle and much, much closer at the end of the cycle. Now, I said an 11-year cycle for the sun. Um, that's not quite correct. There is an 11-year sunspot cycle that the sunspots come and go. But the actual cycle of the sun is actually 22 years. And that's because the sunspots will switch, uh, switch their magnetic polarity. Meaning that what we have is you have pairs of sunspots. You've got a sunspot here, and you might have a north and a south sunspot. Move traveling around the sun. After 11 years, so this is the start. You have those two sunspots. After 11 years, those sunspots are long gone, right? They only last a month or so. <coughs> but 11 years later, in the next sunspot cycle, we see another pair of sunspots form. And then you have south and north. They flipped. 22 years later, again, those sunspots are long gone. They've been gone for 22 years. These have been gone for 11 years. But the next group of sunspots that's occurring will be back to where we were at north and south. So essentially what's happening to the sun is that it's flipping its magnetic field. That you'll have a north magnetic pole and a south magnetic pole. And they flip every 11 years north. So if you could stand on the sun with the compass, okay, your compass would point towards the north here. Wait 11 years, now your compass is going to point towards the south. Wait again another 11 years, it's going to point towards the north again. So the entire cycle of the sun is 22 years, is to go from here, where you started, 
to getting back to exactly the same configuration. The sunspots do come and go every 11 years, but the actual cycle of the sun is actually 22 years. Now, this flipping of the magnetic field isn't unique to the sun. It happens on the Earth, too. Not every 11 years, but over, if you've taken a geology class, over many hundreds of thousands of years, the magnetic field of the Earth will flip as well. So there are times when the North Magnetic Pole is down near Antarctica. And the South Magnetic Pole is up near the North, where our North Pole is now, in the Arctic regions. So it does flip on Earth, too, but not, ne- not with near this regularity, and certainly not, not near as fast. It's not something that we expect, you know, a dozen years from now to go out and take our compasses or our GPSs and everything's backwards because the magnetic field has changed on the Earth. Come back a couple hundred thousand years, that's a different story. That that could very well likely be the case. But we definitely see it on the Earth as well as on the Sun. Now looking at this, this is sort of a wider view looking at the sunspots. My previous chart went back to what, about 1900 or so? where we'd seen we had some very low peaks, we had some really high ones where we had lots of sunspots at the peak. What we're pointing out here, uh, Maunder, you might guess, was a solar astronomer since he had the butterfly diagram and he has his Maunder minimum. He studied the number of sunspots recorded over the years. Well, the first ones were recorded by Galileo here in the very early 1600s. And after that time, astronomers were constantly looking at the sun. They were looking, measuring the number of sunspots and they found, not a whole lot, but they did find some. Observations at the time wouldn't have been consistent. You wouldn't have been looking at the sun every day as we do now. You know, we get, have observatories that just observe the sun images constantly. But you would have been looking and they were certainly able to see sunspots. A little while later, about, when was that, about 60 or so years after Galileo discovered them, we came to a period where there were very few sunspots for a, a long period of time, 40, 50 years, where there were no sunspots on the sun. Not none exactly, because if you look at that, well, you know, you might get up to 15 or 20 there, and maybe to 10 here, really, really low in here. But there was a long period of time where there were hardly any sunspots on the sun. Now we know that measurements were made because we have some observations of sunspots on the sun during the time. So we know that it wasn't just, you know, people stopped making observations. There were observations, it was just that they were all negative. There were hardly any sunspots for this period of time. So it kind of goes back. We have this very relatively regular pattern, but peaks are different, troughs are different. There's a big gap down there. We had a peak and a peak that were, you know, some very interesting thing happens with this magnetic field of the sun and the way it gets tangled up. It gets tangled completely, resets itself, and does the sunspot cycle about every 11 years. Magnetic cycle every 22 years. How often do we get a gap like this? Well, you're looking at the entire, our entire knowledge of sunspots on the sun. I can't go back. Before Galileo, we didn't have telescopes. We didn't have any observations of the sun. I think I mentioned maybe scattered. Someone had seen one at sunrise or sunset, you know, a real big sunspot. Nothing that we could use to really tell what sunspots were like earlier on, at least not directly. There are some things that we look at, and we've seen that this has happened, has likely happened in the past as well, because there is a relationship between the number of sunspots that you get and the temperature that you get on the Earth. The more sunspots, the more activity, the more active the sun is, the warmer it gets on Earth. 
Not tremendously, but enough that it could easily be, easily be measured. So we can look back at you know, climatology records earlier on and see that there were other regions where you know, they were inactive. And this actually corresponds to a very cold time in Europe. A mini ice, it was a mini ice age, so it was extremely cold during this time. Well, sun was inactive, not very active, so it was much cooler for a long period of time and cooled off that, cooled off um, the Euro- European area. Then, for whatever reason, the sun finally reset itself and started kicking back up and we have the regular sunspot cycle we have today. Again, we don't know if that happens every thousand years, every 500 years. You know, are we due for another big long minimum here? Are we due for something else big and long here coming up? It could be. Or it might just be that that won't happen for another thousand or five thousand or ten thousand years. It's one of those things like that, like the great red spot, we have very little evidence to tell when they're going to be able to occur again. I said we've seen some evidence looking at the climate records, but it's not as good as we'd really like to see. We'd really like to be able to see, actually have the sunspot records to see how often this will occur. So very, very irregular, it's, it's irregular in terms of the timing, but irregular overall in terms of it's not exactly correct. You've got big gaps like this, and you've got peaks and troughs that are quite different from year to year. You can go from a massive one here, and just a couple cycles before you had a rather small minimum that was only about a third as big. All right. Now when we look at the sunspots here, I said the sunspots, remember the sunspots are darker, cooler areas on the sun, and I just told you it gets hotter when there's lots of sunspots. They're cooling off the surface of the sun, but they are increasing the amount of energy that is occurring. So when we see sunspots, in this case they're actually showing up bright. Uh, The way this image is taken, the sunspots were looking a little bit higher up in the solar atmosphere, and the sunspots instead of appearing dark are actually bright and are hotter regions in the chromosphere of the sun. This is actually looking in the ultraviolet portion of the spectrum, looking up a little bit higher. And we get uh, eruptions that occur around the magne- where the magnetic field is coming out of the sunspots. You can see one very prominent one over here against the edge of the, so seen against the sky right at the edge of the sun there. And that's a very large prominence. You can almost see the magnetic field lines right there where the material follows. And that is material that was lifted off the surface of the sun by the magnetic field. So when that magnetic, magnetic field line pops through, it can lift solar material off the surface. If it's strong enough, it can actually expel it out into space. A prominence, typically, we see something like this, and then the material loops up and it rains back down on the sun. You know, 10,000 degree rain if we're looking up in the chromosphere. It's a little bit warmer than the rain, you know, the nice warm rain we're used to, but it's the same kind of thing. It's just particles running back down uh, just as the particles that were lifted off the sun, they come right back down. So the prominence typically is not strong enough to lift the material completely off the sun. Lifts it up into the atmosphere of the sun and it falls back down. We can get more intense eruptions. There are actually eruptions that will take material and throw it off the surface of the sun altogether. And that, and the first one of those is called a solar flare. It's a similar process to the prominence. It's a magnetic field breaking through the surface of the sun, lifting material up, and except that instead of taking a nice leisurely time, a prominence will take 
you know, a few days, a week to lift that material up and give us a nice pretty prominence there. This thing will do it all of a sudden in, you know, minutes to hours. It throws that material out. So ejects it with a really fast time. In this case, you know, seconds to minutes. It just lifts it right up. Same amount of energy, same amount of material. It's just going a lot faster and that expels this material out into space. So you'll hear about a solar flare, you know, really intense solar flare that if that happens to be pointed towards the earth, you know, if the earth is way off in this direction someplace and that material is coming towards earth, that will disrupt our communications a little bit. The more intense the flare, the more it will disrupt our magnetic field of the earth and the communications that would, that would occur, that would occur. So we can get very, very large eruptions like this as well that we call a solar flare. So a prominence is a small one, takes a little, much slower time to push that material out into space. A flare does it very quickly. So that eruption all of a sudden just takes place and throws this material out into space. So that's when we start to get some disruption and there's actually some that are even stronger than this. The solar flares occur regularly. They occur more likely when the sun is more active. So the more sunspots you've got, the more likely you are to get solar flares. So right now, the last couple years, we've been much more likely to get solar flares. Uh, coming up, if we look again, if the cycle holds true, you know, three, four years from now, we'll get far fewer solar flares. Sun's going to be at the bottom of its cycle. You're still going to see some sunspots, but not near as many. Now if you get even more intense, we have what we call a coronal mass ejection. This is even more intense than a flare and really sends a lot of material out. Now, the good thing for us is that the sun is quite big and to scale, well, if that's the sun, uh, let's see, I haven't done the scale in here yet. We can do that, we'll do that in a little bit, in a, uh, probably a little bit later. I think I have an exercise, we'll do something like that. But if that's the sun, the earth would be, you know, a little pea-sized object and close to 100 feet away. So out of the, well out of the classroom, just putting that to scale, you know, you're well out of the classroom. You've got to go down out back the building or if you're turning it this way, go down, way down to the end of the hall and past into the classroom a little bit. You know, you need about 100 feet away and, that would, this, and the earth would be a little tiny pea-shaped object. So you can imagine that most of those mass ejections, if the earth is way down there, this thing's going to most of the time go harmlessly out into space. Most of the time. If it happens to be directed at earth, that's when we can have uh, major problems. This is a lot stronger than a solar flare and could cause significant problems. Uh, we've been hit by them before. The last major one that really hit us was about a hundred, what is it now, 160 years ago about? A little more than 160 years ago back in the 18, I'm trying to remember, 1849 is sticking in my head, but it was the mid-1840s that it hit us. So at that point it uh, caused a lot of trouble. They actually saw aurora in Hawaii. <coughs> So, we don't see the aurora all is very far north, you know, North Pole, you don't, Hawaii doesn't get aurora very often. So what that had to have done was really disrupt our magnetic field enough that the charged particles were able to strike, you know, way down here where they normally could never get. It also caused real big damage to communications. What was communications at the time? Telegraph was a big one across the country. And it actually would start fires to the telephone, to the telegraph lines. So a lot of damage there from this solar flare. So if you think about that and you think about what our technology is today, you know, what is that going to, what would that, a nice one hitting us, what would that do to satellites? 
to any kind of electronic equipment. You know, there was very little, not much electronics back in the 1850s. Whereas today, that could cause a significant amount of damage. What can we do about it? Not really a whole lot. If the sun decides to send one our direction, you know, we can't, there's nothing we could do. We don't have any kind of technology that would come close to be able to stopping it. Uh, the only thing, I mean, hardening the electronics, different kind of shielding would protect things, but you know, it could be very expensive when we don't know how long this would be. Yes, ma'am? Uh, they occur on a regular basis. So how often do they occur? I'm going to say even you know yearly, even. But you got that's what I say. That's why that I'm trying to give you that perspective of that P so far away. You know, it's the one in a billion chance that it actually comes and hits us. So they're happening all the time. But sometimes they're going this way, they're going that way, they're going that way. Unless they're going from me, you know, I could send them on that way. Unless I'm going straight to you, it doesn't matter. If they come close, you know, we'll get some signal. That's that one that would hit us, you know, straight on that would cause the damage. Yes, sir. Uh, that was my question. Okay. What would happen if it hit us directly? If it hit us directly, that would be, it would, it could, I mean, depending on the intensity of it, it could wipe out, you know, different communication satellites, um, you know, knock out a lot of electronics here on Earth. I said, we saw, I said, we'll tell what it did, you know, 150 years ago, we've got, a, we're a lot more dependent on electronics and things that we did not have, you know. What do we do when our cell phone goes dead, right? We can't, we're, we're lost, you know, nowadays. So. Other questions? So those are the most intense storms that we that we can get. We can get. So you said that yeah. our north and south pole changes every hundred thousand. It's hundreds. It's in the tens of thousands, the hundreds of thousands of years. No, no. The, what's causing the Earth to flip is something inside the Earth's, and probably what it is is something similar to what happens in the Sun. The Earth down deep actually has a liquid metal core. And perhaps that rotates a little bit differently than the rest of the Earth and the magnetic field. Maybe it twists and turns, not near at the cycle the sun does, but a little bit. And maybe over 10,000, 100,000 years, it gets so twisted and tangled that it finally snaps and resets itself. And when it does, it flips. And now instead of north being up here and south being down here, magnetically, south is up here and north is up here. Should qualify. That doesn't flip the Earth. Some people think, you know, oh, now all of a sudden the North Pole is on the South. The North Pole is still there. North America is still in the Northern Hemisphere. But the magnetic pole is what switched. It's only the magnetic field that flips. Isn't there um, like research that's being done now that says that the, the poles are starting to shift? It might be. I haven't, I'm not, I'm not as big into that, so I haven't seen anything specifically. But there could be. There, is, there certainly is movement. I mean, the poles do not stay in the same sp exact spot. You know, unlike our north rotational pole, which is there, it just stays in one spot, the magnetic pole does wander around a little bit. And it could get to the point where it weakens enough and then flips, just like the others. So I haven't read that specifically, but it certainly is. I wouldn't be surprised if that is the case. Yes, sir? Um, whenever that happens, whether it happens suddenly or whether it happen over a long period of time? I don't think I. I'm honestly. I'm not the geologist, so I don't. I don't know that. I don't know that that well. So I'll be honest and tell you that I'm not sure how quick it. How quick it would occur. I don't. I would think it would take some time, just like the sun's doesn't flip like that. I would think. I would think that it would take you know a good amount of time for it to actually flip. We wouldn't just wake up. You know, our compasses point north today, and we'll wake up tomorrow and they point south. I don't think that would happen. It would probably take a, you know, decades. You know, centuries. I mean. Short time geologically, you know, if you talk about a geologist, what's 100 years? Same thing as an astronomer, you know, what's 100 years to a star? But for us, it's like, okay, it takes it forever to do, to 
to do that switching. But yeah, I'm, I'm thinking. I'm thinking it would take a longer time, just like much like the Suns does. All right, makes sense. Yep. Good questions. Anything else? Alrighty. Well, let's finish up here on the active sun. Uh, this is the sun actually in X-rays here. So this is looking at the very outermost layers of the sun. The photosphere was the inner, that's visible light. The chromosphere, we've looked at a couple images of that. That was ultraviolet light because it was a little bit hotter. The corona is even hotter in the millions of degrees, so it emits a lot of X-rays. So this is images of it in X-rays. The brighter areas are where lots of X-rays are coming from. The darker areas are where there's very few X-rays. And those dark areas are what we call coronal holes. So they're essentially like a hole in the corona. And what they are, most of the time, the magnetic field on the sun comes out, loops around, and comes back in, much as it does on the Earth. But because the Earth's is so twisted, the sun's is so twisted and tangled, here's some that are looped, but here's some magnetic field lines that actually just kind of trail out into space. They extend way out into space, and that means a lot of the particles that would be coming out here are actually not trapped by the sun. They're actually able to escape out into space. Now, that's not like the flares. The flares are much more energy. The coronal mass ejections, they can send that material out through and disrupt the magnetic field lines. This is more of a gentle flow of solar, of solar particles. Particles are just constantly streaming off from the sun. The sun is getting a little bit less massive every single day by you know, billions of tons. but Compared to the mass of the sun, it can do that for 20 billion years and we'll never notice the difference. So because it has so much material there. But there is a constant stream of particles coming out from the sun. Um, those do affect the Earth as well. We can get aurora from the solar wind particles. It's not near as intense. It's sort of the general aurora. You're only going to see it very close to the poles. It's usually when you get the flares, when you get the coronal mass ejections, that you can actually see the, material, see the aurora further down, further south. That's about all, all you can see of them. But here, the solar wind is just constantly streaming material away from the sun. And that's what we're seeing here is kind of a hole in the corona because of the way the magnetic field lines have twisted up. Some of them still loop back down. There's those sunspots there. Nice big tight loop of, of magnetic field. That kind of blocks the particles. They try to get out. They can't go across those field lines. They cannot get across them. A charged particle will not go across a magnetic field line. So it gets trapped in there and held in. Out here where these magnetic field lines kind of trail off into space, then you can get lots of particles that can escape out of there. And the sun, again, loses a good amount of mass every single year. But a very small fraction of its mass, nothing that's going to be even noticeable over its 10 billion year life. And the corona, I think I mentioned this last time. I'm going to show the image one more time as we finish up here on the active sun. The corona changes as well. This is a picture of what it would look like near the peak of the sunspots. It's very irregular. You got a big pointed section here, a little bit up here, another bright section here, a darker area, a little darker area. Um, that's what it looks like near the peak of the sunspot cycle. So if we took a picture of the corona the last year or so, we'd see something similar to this. If we took it a couple years from now, or five or six years ago, we'd get, it would be a little irregular, but it would be kind of a full area covering around the sun, relatively sm smooth. So when the sun gets more intense, it actually disrupts its own corona, its own atmosphere, 
uh, to the extent that it really changes its shape. You get much more intense areas here and much less intense areas as well. So the corona does change with the sunspot cycle. The more active the sun is, the more irregular it becomes. So it's a way, another way for us to look at the activity of the sun. So the sunspots are the primary one that we're used to. That's right on the sun's surface. That's what we can see directly. But there's a lot of other things like the prominences, like the flares, like the coronal mass ejections and the changes in the corona that we can also see. Alrighty. Now, did the outside of the sun, we're jumping way back down to the inside for the last few slides here. Um, we're going to go back down to what's powering the sun. How is it getting its energy? And the sun is powered, you may have heard, through nuclear fusion. That's not nuclear fission like we use here on Earth for energy. Right? Nuclear fission, Three Mile Island, takes uranium and splits it apart and gains energy by splitting a large atom into smaller ones. We can also get energy by taking very light atoms and fusing them into bigger atoms. And what is done essentially is that you take protons, hydrogen atoms. Hydrogen atom is a proton with an electron orbiting it. When you're at the center of the sun and it's 15 million degrees, that electron is not held on to this. Everything's moving too fast, banging into each other. That electron cannot stay on the atom. So you just have protons, just bare protons moving around at very high speeds and very high densities. If you can take four of those together and smash them into one, you can take four protons and create a nucleus of helium, the next element up. In order to do that, the problem is you've got to get them very close together. Why? Well, a proton has a positive charge. The other proton has a positive charge. When you bring them close together, like charges repel, right? They push each other apart. So you, they don't want to get very close together. So you start bringing them close together, boom, they push each other apart. They're not going to fuse. If you can get them close enough, if you can get them about 10 to the minus, that 15th meters, about 10 to the minus, you don't need the specific number, but you've got to get them really close, you know. One meter, divide that into, you know, one quintillion pieces. You can imagine that? Yeah. We divide it into a hundred, divide it into you know a hundred centimeters or a thousand millimeters, and that's a lot of pieces. Each millimeter is a thousand. You've got to go many, many times that in order to get down to the distance you have to. But if you can get those two protons that close together, there's a new force that kicks in. We have the electromagnetic force which pushes them apart. There is also the what we call the strong nuclear force. which is really, really strong if things are super close together. That's what, kind of ho that's what holds a nucleus of an atom together. A nucleus of an atom of something like, uh, what do we want to pick out? Let's pick out oxygen. Oxygen has eight protons in its nucleus. Those are all positively charged. If you just look at the electromagnetic force, they want to push each other apart. They don't want to stay there. You've got positive charges all close to each other. They want to rip that atom apart. If you get them that close, down to nuclear sizes, there's an actually a strong nuclear force which holds them together. It's much stronger than the electromagnetic force, but only works if things are very, very close together. So you have to be able to moving thing, move things fast enough to get these protons close enough together that the strong force kicks in and holds them together before their electromagnetic repulsion pushes them apart.
And that can only happen when you get extremely high temperatures. So this isn't going on on the surface of the sun. It's only 6,000 degrees. You need a minimum of 10 million degrees. Center of the sun is about 15 million. It's got, it's got plenty hot enough there for it to be able to fuse hydrogen to helium. Now, I talked about taking four hydrogen atoms and fusing into one helium. It really happens in stages, and this is the first stage shown here. What happens is when you get things at those high speeds, those high temperatures, and you smash two protons together, they collide, they form a deuteron. Deuteron is a, another form of hydrogen. It's deuterium. It has its hydrogen with one proton and one neutron, one neutral particle. So it forms that. That's another isotope, that's a, a, another form of hydrogen. That'll come out, that'll go into another step of the process that I'll show you on the next slide. But two other particles come out that we want to look at a little bit. This is where a lot of the energy comes from. One particle is a positron. Anyone heard of a positron? Maybe? No? It's a, it's a little bit of antimatter. It's an anti-electron. So it's exactly like an electron, same mass. Same everything else, except the charge is different. So it is an anti-electron. Well, if you form a positron in the middle of this big sea of protons and electrons, it immediately finds an electron and they annihilate each other, forming a lot of energy. Those two, that positron and that electron will combine together. The matter disappears completely. All the mass is gone. And it turns into energy. It turns into very, very high energy gamma rays. So that comes back to Einstein. One equation everybody knows, you take that mass of those two particles, that positron and that electron, and they're gone completely. You turn that completely into energy. That's where a lot of the energy comes from. Because the mass of four hydrogen atoms is a little bit more than the mass of the helium atom that's going to come out of that. The other particle that you get out of it that also is needed because you can't lose charges. You've got two positive charges coming in, one, two positive charges coming out. So that balances the charge. The other particle that comes out is a neutrino. Neutrino is another very tiny particle with a very small amount of mass. And it's, it's a different type of particle than most that you're used to. It doesn't like to interact with anything. It just zips through everything. So they zip right out of the core of the sun right now come straight to us, zip right through us, right through the earth, and head out into space. Now, if you're holding your finger up, there's you know, billions of them passing through your fingernail every single second. They don't interact with anything, so they don't affect you. They can go zip right through you, and they don't do much of anything at all. But they're important because if we can learn to detect them, which we have, we can rarely, on rare occasions, actually detect them, then we can learn something about really what's going on in the center of the sun right now. So let's look at the whole process here. We've looked at the first process, first step here. This was two protons crashing together, formed an uh, atom of deuterium. The positron finds an electron, turns into gamma rays. There's some energy. Zoom. All of a sudden, we've got some energy from the sun here. Also, the neutrino comes out. We're going to look at the neutrinos in the next couple of slides. The next step is you take deuterium. Crash it together with a proton, and you form now a little, little simpler process. You had two positive charges in and one neutral. You come out with the same thing. This is actually helium. Not the helium we're used to. Helium we're used to has two protons and two neutrons. This one has two protons and only one neutron. It's a lighter version of helium. 
Um, then you smash two of those together and that gives you the common everyday very stable helium that we're used to and to balance everything, right, two positive, so that's four positive charges and two neutral. This has two positive and two neutral. There's those other two positive charges, protons coming back out and they just come back and continue the cycle. Now this is happening billions upon billions upon billions of times every single second in the sun. So that little bit, the energy that's created, even by annihilating those electrons, is very tiny. You need so many reactions of this every single second, converting how many millions or billions of tons of, of hydrogen into helium, losing that much mass every single second just to support the sun. Now, I don't expect you to memorize, I'm not going to give you an exam question that says write, write down, the, draw the proton-proton chain so you don't have to memorize or do this. I want you to know the parts that are going into it. I want you to know what you're starting with, what you're coming out, you know, the general things. We want to know about the neutrinos. We want to know about the positrons. But I don't expect you, I'm not going to have you ask you to try to redraw this kind of thing on it. But I do want you to know the different parts, where the energy is coming from here in the gamma rays. And again, neutrinos we're going to talk about here in a minute. And what went in and what went out. So again, don't, don't, sit, don't want you to spend you know, this next weekend memorizing that because that, that will not be one of your essay questions. I'll tell you that for sure. But I want to come back to the neutrinos. Are there any questions? I should ask if there's questions. I mean, it's just that, that, is, that is how the sun produces its energy. There's actually another method that works for the more massive stars that they use. It's a little bit more efficient for a more massive star. But I'm not going get to into, get into that here. It's, it's even a little bit more compl complex than this. All right. So let's look at the neutrinos. And that's what I want to kind of finish up with here today is the neutrinos escape. They don't interact with anything. They're, they're traveling right through you. You know, billions upon billions of them every single second are traveling right through your body. You don't feel them. You don't notice them because they don't interact with anything. If they can travel through the entire sun, the entire earth, they're not going to notice you, right? Uh, but if we can interact, it says virtually nothing. They do interact on very, very rare occasions. So if you have a billion, billion, billion of them coming through, Maybe one of them will interact. It is, like most of quantum mechanics, it's a statistical probability thing. There's some probability that each one of those will interact. It's incredibly tiny. You know, your odds of winning the lottery are much better. So, but there is some tiny one, but there's so many of them, right? There's so many billions upon billions of them that every once in a while they will interact with an atom here on Earth and produce a little flash of light. And that's what we've made detectors to try to be able to study, to be able to detect these neutrinos from the sun. So the only way we can do that, a couple things that we've done here, they're not going to interact with any detectors we make any better. You know, they'll travel through an astronomical unit of lead without a problem. It's very, very rare that they interact. So we have to make a really big detector and we have to look for individual interactions. We're not looking for hundreds and thousands of them to interact. We're looking, oh, look, there's one today. Maybe there's one tomorrow, maybe one a couple days later. You're really counting only those very rare interaction events. And we do find them. And in fact, when we found them first, we found out that we weren't getting the right number. We found out that we were getting only about a third of what we expected. Now, we, under we thought we understood neutrinos pretty well. So we knew how they were going to interact. There was a probability that they'd have some probability of interacting. We had calculations based on the proton-proton chain. We could say how many were being produced every single second in the sun. 
How many were getting to the Earth eight and a half minutes later? Because they travel at almost the speed of light. So how many were getting to the Earth a few minutes later? So we knew how many we should be able to detect each day. And if we were expecting to detect 100, just say, in some time period, we were only detecting about 33. So we expected this many, but we actually detected only about a third of the number. So that was a big problem for physicists and astronomers for a long time, even this is just a couple of decades ago. You know, not talking back in the 1800s or you know, not even the early 1900s. This was only you know, in the last 20 or so years that we've really been looking at this closely. And it was a big problem. You know, that's, a, that's a big difference. You know, if you're expecting this many and you're only getting 33, something, something is wrong. And it could be two things. It could be the neutrino itself. Do we not understand how the neutrino works? Or could it be the sun? Now we know the proton-proton chain. We can figure out that's how it works. But are the temperatures off? What if our temperature of the sun, what if our model of the sun is a little bit off? Could we adjust the model of the sun to make it fit? Or do we not understand the neutrino completely? Now we've since solved this. We've since solved this problem. Our models of the sun are actually correct. It turns out that there are actually three types of neutrinos. And there's one kind that's produced in the sun. That's the kind we set up to detect. There are two other kinds and neutrinos, subatomic particles can do some really weird things including change, form. So there are three types of neutrinos. Once they form, if the neutrino has even a tiny bit of mass, they can change form. So they can become neutrino number one, neutrino number two, neutrino number three. They can oscillate and become any one of those. So by the time they get to Earth, you know, less than 10 minutes later, now one-third of them are still the type that we expect to detect, but one-third of the second type and one-third of the third type that our detectors aren't designed to predict. So we couldn't detect them. So in reality we found out you know, 15 or 20 years ago that we were detecting the right amount. We understood the sun properly and it was just that the neutrino, we learned something about the neutrino, the neutrino has a little bit of mass. And that small amount of mass is enough to trigger this change, the way the neutrino can actually change form from one, one, one neutrino to the other. Have we been able to detect the second or third or is it just the first? Just the first one with the equipment that I'm going to show you here. These are the, this is the kind of equipment that, we, that is used to detect there. I don't know if you can get an idea of the scale there. You can see the people in the little boat. This is a gigantic tank of cleaning fluid. Lots of chlorine in it. Chlorine is one of the atoms that they will most likely interact with. Not every other one, not every tenth one, not every billionth one or billion, but you know, they're more likely to interact with it. So this is the big tank of cleaning fluid. When they interact, they produce a thing of a little uh, glow of light. And that can be detected by one of these detectors. If we detect exactly where it is, then we can kind of map out everything as to where it is. So this is essentially a gigantic neutrino telescope. But just to give you an idea of how big, I said we needed a big volume. That's how big of a volume we needed to be able to do that. We also had to shield it. If you see how everything's kind of underground here, it was actually done in a mine, a mine shaft out in South Dakota, I believe. So put it well below. That way it shielded it from any other uh, particles coming just in. From, it shielded everything from other particles. Only the neutrinos, which can travel through everything, could get down to this detector. So it kind of got rid of you know, any cosmic ray particles, any other particles from space just coming in and giving you false 
identifications. But that was a big experiment you know, just a few decades ago to really help us to understand, that, to confirm that we really do understand the sun. It'll interact on rare occasions. It'll interact, be absorbed by that, that atom will actually absorb it and give off a little bit of energy. Very, very tiny, a tiny amount, but just en- enough that we can detect and we can get that little flash of light. You know, one here, one there. Again, it's not like your regular telescope where you're collecting, you know, light and light and light and light. It's very little, very, very tiny bits that we're detecting. Is there any like video evidence of it? Of the interactions. Of the inner, we can detect the light. The light, yes. We can't. I mean, you're not going to get down to that small scale to be able to, to actually see the interaction, though. I mean, these particles would be tinier than anything else we've, than most other particles we look at. You know, talk about protons and electrons. They're smaller than that. How are we doing here? Well, just about done. I'm just going to put up the summary, and if you want to take a look at that, that's a good something good thing to look at for, uh, for the exam, and that way I'll be able to start on chapter 10, starting on the stars on. Friday. Uh, this, this is the last chapter for the exam, so I'm going to go ahead and start. We'll, do, we'll start chapter 10 on Friday in the lecture section, plus have our lab. And then Monday, when we just have a single class, we'll be back and do the, and do the exam. But the exam will end at chapter 9. Nothing that we cover on Friday will be, will be included. Questions? Otherwise, have a good rest of the morning, and I will see everyone Friday. <laughs>